what my image is of an evangelist. And sometimes I think we have a very stereotypical idea of what we think an evangelist should be like and should look like and should act. Maybe for you the evangelist is the fanatic who's in the street corner that you cross the street to avoid. Well, I'm alright, I'm already a Christian. So you don't want to go maybe near him in case you're embarrassed. Or maybe you think the evangelist is the, the rare and gifted uh, preacher from the pulpit. Uh, And it's uh, a variety of different ideas that we have about who are or who aren't evangelists. And sometimes we can have a very passive idea of our Christianity. That it's something we're always receiving and taking. And that it's for others to do the work of uh, evangelism. Others who have the gifts. Others who have the talents and the time. And yet, I suppose if I was to ask in the whole congregation here today, who was it that most influenced you to become a Christian? Probably most of you would name an individual rather than a preacher. I know a preacher is an individual as well. But an individual who you loved and who you were close to. I'm sure preaching had a very significant part in that. And obviously I'm not discounting the the spiritual element, but from a human point of view... Uh, Very often it will be your granny, or your dad, or your sister, or your best friend. Somebody ordinary who had a great influence on you. They were your evangelists. They were the ones who shared Jesus Christ and who had a tremendous impact on your life and on mine. And I'd like to spend just a little while this morning trying to maybe break down some of our misapprehensions about evangelism and consider four things that we find in this passage that would encourage us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in the variety of ways as human beings that we can do that. And the first point I'd like to make is that everyone has a role in evangelism. In verse 20, Paul says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Now, the theologians here might quickly say, oh, well, this guy really doesn't know his Bible, because that's obviously Paul speaking, and Paul speaking as an apostle with a special ambassadorial role. It doesn't apply to me. Now, there's no doubt that this is uh, Paul's specific role, as it is with all the ambassadors of Christ who were apostles, or apostles who were ambassadors. He had a special role and a special gift, but there's no doubt that that gift and that role uh, Uh, cavalcades down, uh, waterfalls down to the whole church of Christ and that we all, uh, to a lesser or greater degree, are to be imitators of Paul as Paul was an imitator of Christ. Often in his epistles he encourages us to be imitators of him. And we can see that we have also an ambassadorial role for Jesus Christ. We are called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. All are involved in that role. In verse 11 he says, or throughout the chapter he speaks about some of the things that are involved in that. In verse 11 he says that we, because we know what it is to fear the Lord, and as Christians we all know that, we are therefore trying to persuade people. So there's persuasion involved because we know the Lord God. And because we have this great knowledge, we have this task and this privilege of persuading people about the Jesus who has changed our lives. But also he says in verse 17 that uh, we uh, do what we do because we are new creations. Are we saying we are not new creations? 
Of course, we are new creations, just as Paul was. And just as he was an ambassador, so are we. As new creations, we have this privilege and this specific, specifically precious role of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message, he says, in verse 18, is ours. It's a ministry that we are to share. And in verse 1 of chapter 6, which we, we kind of went on to read, he talks about being God's fellow workers. We are all fellow workers with God. It's an immense privilege that we have. It's not that we sit back and let the professionals do the work. It is uh, we are the body of Christ and we have this privilege of working together to serve him and to witness for him. Now, of course, we're not all the same and we praise God for that. We are unique individuals. And even within the Gospels, we find lots of different ways in which Jesus used people to share himself and to share his truth. In Acts 17, Paul would have fitted in very well with his congregation as he reasoned with them intellectually, bright, intelligent people. I'll come back any time. And, uh, you know, he, would, he, he was happy in any company. He could intellectually argue apologetically for Christ. And he did so in Acts 17. Peter, in Acts 2, was very confrontational. You are the ones who put Jesus to the cross. It was your denial. It was how you acted. And he was very upfront and confrontational in a way that we possibly wouldn't be very uh, comfortable with. But the blind man in John chapter 9 was great, wasn't he? Because he says, well, all I know is once I was blind. And now I can see. It was a testimonial. His own profession. That what Jesus had done for him, it wasn't apologetic. He didn't use a whole lot of arguments. He didn't uh, wrestle theologically with people. He said, well, look, here's the evidence. I'm a changed person. I've been healed. It was a testimony. Levi, Matthew, in uh, Luke chapter 5, what did he do? Well, we're not told exactly what he said, but we are told what he did. He opened his home. He was hospitable. He took all his mates who were tax collectors and sinners and he opened his home to them. And he showed that Christ had transformed him from being a greedy miser, wanting his own uh, benefits and his own wealth, to being one who was sharing everything because he had been transformed and touched by Jesus. Dorcas in Acts 9 was a servant. So there's all kinds of different models. And we need to maybe dispel and dissolve the idea of the evangelist being a stereotypical sandwich board type person who uh, preaches on the street corners because there is all kinds of different ways of sharing Jesus Christ. We've just finished a series at our house groups uh, in the church uh, uh, studying a book. It wasn't a book of the Bible. Horror, shock. Um, but it, it was based in the Bible, thankfully. And it was... Uh, called The Provocative Church. I don't know if any of you have read that book by a guy called Graham Tomlin, who's a Church of England vicar. And uh, it's a brilliant book, fantastic book, because it reassesses a lot of what we think about evangelism and how we evangelize. And he, the kind of thesis of his book really is that uh, it's not so much what we do and uh, what we engage in, it's more what we are intrinsically as Christians that will mean that we evangelize. Because Jesus is real to us that we will just naturally share him. And so he, he kind of uh, examines, uh, there's an internal examination that he goes on and asks what kind of church you are, basically. And it's a really good and helpful uh, book uh, with regard to evangelism. So he and the word of God would 
clearly encourages all to uh, be evangelists. And the second point I'd like to make about evangelism, and I think it's a very significant one, is uh, in verse 14, where Paul says, For Christ, Christ's love compels us. So here we have the motive for sharing Jesus with others. And it's a wonderfully mixed up verse. And it's one we wouldn't necessarily put together, would it? Because we've got this whole element of compulsion. Now, we often associate compulsion with duty. Well, I have to do it. We ought to do it. If this is the kind of church we are, we should have an evangelistic program and CE and I must share the gospel and I'll do evangelism explored and evangelism explained and evangelism explosion and all the different X's that you can explode with regard to evangelism and you'll do them all. And it's a kind of compulsion that we feel we ought to. And that's absolutely right. But the motive isn't duty here. The greatest and the highest motive of sharing Jesus Christ is his love. The love of Jesus Christ in the way that we were speaking earlier to the children about good news that we simply want, we can't keep in, that we want to share. To the wedding on Friday and you just couldn't keep the bride and groom quiet as they just exploded with love for one another and shared that and the groom was saying all these beautiful things about the bride and it's all very romantic and slushy, but it was tremendously evident that they really loved each other and that they were compelled to take these vows, compelled to say that they will not be unfaithful, that they will not just walk away on a bad day, compelled to do that publicly in front of God and in front of the congregation. And it was a compulsion of love. And that is what Paul speaks about and that we are to consider and that we're reminded of at the communion today, really, as we focus again on what Jesus has done for us, that it's a love which engulfs us and grasps us and takes hold of us because we're so unworthy and we so let him down and we so fail and we so stumble. And yet as we gently come back into his presence, with all our stupidity and all our failure, he embraces us in his love again. And he reminds us that the price has been paid. And that love compels us because it's worth sharing. And it's transformational. And it's the only grace that people uh, will need to have their lives changed. And it's significant that that is the motivation that we have for sharing the gospel. It's internal and it's powerfully real because of what has happened to ourselves. We're to live that love. And I think the trouble with us as churchy people, as maybe many of us are here in the sense we've been brought up in the church, that the gospel and communion and the Lord's Supper um, and uh, the cross and the message and the formula... And everything is so well known to us and our lives are so together that it's not that important. It's not that real. It's not that transformational. It isn't that influential in our lives. There's a little sprinkling of love here and there. Bigger, much more so on a Sunday. Not so much during the week. But now and again, we're touched by his love. Maybe occasionally a real point of crisis we just begin to taste his love, especially in our failure. 
especially in our failure. But that love is how we are to live. And that grace is the compulsive motivation for sharing Jesus. And it is a love that speaks. It's not a love that always blurts out all the time so that people are tired and fed up of you always nagging on about the gospel. It's a love that cares about people and prays for the opportunity and knows when to speak and when to remain silent and when to uh, share and when to, uh, by your silence, profess Jesus Christ. Uh, there is action and there are words, but there mustn't always be this ongoing rat-a-tat-a-tat machine gun of words in every opportunity that we have caressed and made ourselves. We're to be listening for God and uh, for His opportunities. But when the opportunities come, that love is not silent. And it doesn't point to Charlotte Chapel. And it doesn't point to your preacher or to St. Columbus or to any other church or to uh, any other religious organization. It points to Jesus. And people will have all kinds of questions about the Bible and about evolution and about uh, science and about different things. Point them to Christ. Take them to crucifixion. Christ and Him crucified. That's our message and it's about the transformational reality of Jesus and the compulsion of His love changing us. So that's the second thing that we can uh, take, uh, at least the second thing we can take from the passage. The third thing we can take from the passage, uh, among other things, is uh, by implication, really, uh, and it is that heaven and hell are very real. He finishes that section from verse 16 to verse 20 by saying, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And Paul knows that there is a heaven to be gained and there is a hell to be shunned. That there is this need. And it's spoken of so clearly here, I don't know how else you would interpret it. But there is this need for reconciliation from being brought back into fellowship with God, for mending what is broken, for uh, healing a divide. If you are not reconciled to someone, it means you're not in a right relationship with them. If you work in a bank and the bank balances don't meet, there's a need for a reconciliation so that they will meet and that you can go home and have your tea. It's, um, I can tell those that work in a bank know the reality of that. Spending hours finding one pence somewhere in the uh, list. But reconciliation is the need to put what is wrong right. And that whole realization is very much behind the message of reconciliation for Christ and for Paul and for every believer, heaven is real. It is uh, the kingdom of God now in every believer and every gathering of his people and uh, in the church of Christ. But uh, also tangibly, it is a real, uh, genuine place where the risen Savior is. Where he is with the angels and with the souls of all believers who have died from the beginning of time until now. And uh, that reality, the best thing about the, uh, that reality is that Jesus Christ will be there and we will be at peace with him. And every believer is at peace with Jesus Christ. 
And if you're a Christian, then in a very real sense, you've already entered into that, the beginnings of that rest. And you're one with Christ so that we don't need to wait until our dying day to say, well, maybe I'm a Christian, maybe I'm not, maybe I will be saved, maybe I won't. It's not like the Jehovah's Witness who will come to your door and say, you can't guarantee your salvation. You can't know you'll be saved. There's a few more doors to knock on before you can have that guarantee. No, in Christ, we can be assured, not because of what we are or what we have done, but because of what Christ has achieved, that we can say our salvation is sure and our hope is secure. And that if we die tonight, then we will go to be with Him in glory. That is good news. It's great news. I've got an old lady this week in St. Columbus who died at 93 and she was a Christian believer. She used to come very often on a Thursday, I think, to Charlotte Chapel to the afternoon, uh, to the cafe and uh, she loved fellowship with God's people. But, you know, doing her funeral is a great privilege because there's an assurance that she has now seen and knows the one that she trusted in and believed all her life. So there's this reconciliation that we have. And, you know, whatever else happens to you this week, if you're a Christian, all is well. And that is great news. Absolutely great news. It puts things into perspective. But the reality also is that without reconciliation, there is a hell to shun. And it's a subject that I don't like speaking about and we don't like talking about really generally today. But there is... This reality of not being reconciled with God. And if you're not a Christian, you know, however else things look like in your life and however well you're doing at the bank and however things are going well in your life, if there's this sole problem that you're not reconciled to God, that you're not at peace with God through Christ, that your sins remain on your own shoulders rather than on Christ at the cross, then you remain in this terribly dangerous position which you might not feel, which you may think, what is he talking about? But which the Bible clearly makes uh, clear as the condition for everyone without Jesus Christ. It's separated from, not reconciled to our Father that Jesus came to enable us to be. You see, the disease of sin uh, all at once woos us, attracts us, tempts us, takes us, and is destroying us. Hell is uh, the evil and the darkness and the reality just as much as heaven is the reality occupied not by Christ but by Satan and his angels. place of spiritual darkness reserved for those who will not be reconciled to God. He's speaking rubbish. Maybe some of you are thinking that. But there is, you know, a taste of it in this life, isn't there? All suffering and death, and evil, and hatred, and greed, and selfishness, and pride, and ugliness. Where's it from? We see it at Calvary. We see it on the cross. The price that had to be paid. You know, we we don't muck about with these things. Jesus, it wasn't just a stroll in the park for Jesus. I'm heading off to the cross today. That'll do. No problem. And then I'll go back to heaven. Sweated drops of blood forsaken of his father as he experienced the separation of non-reconciliation and of course we believe it because Christ says it's true Christ speaks about it and if we like Christ I was speaking to someone at the wedding that I was at uh, who had had too many champagnes but as he had too many champagnes or 
heart open about her condition. We spoke a lot about the fact that she loved Jesus, but she didn't like God. She struggled with God. It was big and scary. But Jesus, she liked Jesus. He was close. And yet she wasn't willing to accept what Jesus says about himself and about his relationship uh, with God and his oneness with God. And it's very often the case for us. Okay, so that's the third thing, that heaven and hell are are realities. And we need, I think, sometimes to reassess and readjust ourselves and come back to that position. And the last thing I'd like to say is uh, that people, people matter to God. In verse 19, uh, Paul says, from now on, uh, sorry, verse 16, he says, from now on we regard no one from an earthly point of view. And then in verse 19, he speaks about Christ reconciling the world to himself. People matter to God. And if we look at the parables that uh, Jesus spoke, many of them spoke eloquently of the fact that people matter to God. The parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. They all speak about God caring for individuals and great rejoicing in heaven. Great rejoicing in heaven. God searches for the one person and heaven rejoices and heaven praises. And Christ's love throughout spoke, uh, sorry, Christ's life throughout spoke of his love. Love for people, the old diseased woman, the unloved tax collector, the uh, prostitute, the rich young man, the religious leader. The life of a Roman governor, the thief on the cross, all individuals, children, families, old people, young people. The characteristic of his life was the chaotic life of someone who gave himself for people. Yes, he drew away and was alone, but he loved people. And we must be very distrustful of a theology that allows us not to care about people that allows us in the safety and security of our theological stronghold to stay separate and to not get dirty and not get involved and not become a sacrificial servant because people matter to Christ and uh, we share the gospel of love because people matter to us. And so I suppose the question, well certainly the question I need to ask myself is that the impression that I give to others that They don't care. Is it that we want nice, clean-cut, correct, unattached problems in our life? And if people come in to our churches, that we want them to be all fully risen Christians, complete and uh, without troubles. This is, well, Christ didn't think about us in that way with all our brokenness and all our misunderstanding and all uh, our misrepresentation of himself. So let it be that as a congregation, I pray for myself and my congregation, that people matter to us. People are important to us. And uh, that Christ has given us this great privilege of being ambassadors. I encourage you not to say, count me out of being an evangelist. You're a very special person and Christ has chosen. He has bought you with his blood if you're a Christian. And we have this great inestimable privilege for the 
few short years over here to share his gospel. First and foremost to be his ambassadors. First and foremost to be ambitious for Christ. And please don't, and I don't suppose you say this is maybe more a problem from the background I come from, is there's no point. No one will believe today anybody. People don't want to hear. I guess it depends what we tell them and how we tell them. And may it be that we ourselves recognize the privilege of being Christ's ambassadors. And may the most important thing be that uh, the love of Christ compels us so to do. Let's bow our heads in prayer.